12. Acts 4, 5 through 12. That's 968 in the Pew Bibles. And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were with the family of the high priest, were gathered together in Jerusalem. And when they had set, him, set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people, and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, but there is none other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, again, we welcome you. It's always good to have folks visiting with us. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. When I was just a little boy, my father went to the city dump. And when he was there, he found a table. Now, this isn't the table, but I just want you to see this table because this is about the size of the table that he found in the city dump. It did have a much thicker top that was one piece of wood, and it had intricate carving around the base uh, of the top. And the, the table was beautiful. You couldn't help but wonder, how could someone think that that table was a piece of trash? Stamped on the bottom of the table was the date 1851. For years, we've enjoyed uh, this table in our home, and recently... Uh, kind of a spin-off of the Antique Roadshow that some of you will be familiar with on PBS. There was a small version of that that came to a, a neighboring county. And so my father decided he wanted to take the table and see if he could find out any information about the table. Well, as it turns out, they couldn't give him a lot of detail, but they did tell him that what he had was pretty valuable. They said that it would be worth at least $1,250 to $1,500. Now... Again, I reason with you. How could that be a person's trash? How could they throw something out that, even without the monetary value, had such beauty to it? But then, in addition to the beauty, had such value to it? That is the question we ask oftentimes. One person's trash, another person's treasure. That's interesting. But it's not arresting. You see, when a fact is arresting, it captures our attention and it demands a response. For the rest of this lesson, let's think about something that is arresting. 
Before Jesus Christ came to this earth, it was prophesied over and over again that man would have to decide what they were going to do with Jesus. Man would either take this stone of Israel, as he is called in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, the 49th chapter, and they would have to decide if they were going to build their life on that stone or if they were going to reject that stone. Would Jesus be a reject or would he be a redeemer? And everyone that's ever lived since Jesus' death has had to make that decision. We just had read for us so capably a scripture reading that reminds us very early in the church history that individuals were challenged with that fact. Will I reject him or will I allow him to serve as my redeemer? And it hasn't changed. Every one of us here today will either decide that he is our redeemer or we will reject him again. Now, what I'd like for us to do is to spend a little time this morning going through the Scriptures, looking at a few places. By no means can we look at them all. But look at a few places that helps us to understand this particular passage. And then in the last few minutes that we have, we will look in depth at this passage. But let's develop this and let's see the history that leads to this. Because if you note it in your Bible... What you just read there in Acts, the fourth chapter, verse 11 was a quote from Psalms 118. In other words, Peter goes back and he says, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said. But even when Jesus said it, he was saying, I want to remind you of something that the psalmist said. Look with me, if you will, as we go back beginning in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, you remember in the second chapter, the king Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he saw an image that was made of various materials. And then he was told that each of these materials would represent... He was told by Daniel in interpreting the dream that the, each of these materials would represent various empires, world powers that would live. And remember, one represented Babylonian and one the murdered media Persians and the Macedonians and the Greece. And then another was the Rome. But then I'd like to take your attention to 44 and 45 and think about this stone here. And 44, he says, And in the last days of these kings, the gods of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And as much as ye saw that the stone, notice that, the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in the pieces of iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after these. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Here Daniel speaks of the stone that's going to come out of the mountain. We've been talking all month about a rock-solid living, building our life upon something that's solid, that rock, that stone, Jesus Christ. And so here in this passage, we see a prophecy about the stone, Jesus, and the kingdom that the stone will establish. And the kingdom, he says, is going to endure forever once it's established, that it'll never be passed off to another people. Now, the several kingdoms that were mentioned before, what is alive in those kingdoms today? Did you answer the word nothing in your mind? Rome isn't a kingdom today. Oh, at one time, if you would have told individuals that there wouldn't be a Roman empire, they would have laughed at you. How could you have something so massive, so powerful, such great population, a world empire, and say it's not going to exist? Anything that even relates to it is going to be history. 
artifacts, writings about what used to be. Friends, if you would have went to anyone that lived during these empires, they would have laughed at the thought that it would only be a byword in history. What's going to exist forever? Here the prophecy is there's going to be a kingdom established and it's not going to last just a few centuries like the world empires. It's going to last and cannot be destroyed. As a matter of fact, it won't be handed off to other people. In other words, it won't be under God's control today and later in Satan's control. It's going to remain with God. You see, what he's prophesying here is not only about the kingdom, but he's prophesying that the kingdom will be made up of those that are saved, those that are the hands of God. And he's offering the security and the protection that is in that. Now, that's an idea of the stone and the kingdom that's going to be established from that stone. But look with me, if you will, now to Psalms 118. And we especially need to look at this this morning because this ties right in to the passage in Acts, the fourth chapter. In Psalms 118, uh, notice as we begin reading, and I'm going to start in, in verse 20, and notice how he says, and, and this is praise to God by David, and in this Psalms of praise, he says, this is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. So see, he's talking about some kind of gate. And righteous people are going to pass through this gate. And what is the gate of the Lord? He says in 21, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. So he's talking about this gate the righteous will pass. And he's talking about that this gate is going to be his salvation. Now let's read on. Now he refers to it in 22, the stone which the builders, no way, they rejected. He was the way. He was salvation. He was the stone cut out of the mountain that is going to establish a kingdom and it's going to endure forever and ever. Why would anyone reject that stone? Let's finish verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now what's interesting, when we go back in history and we read even the Jewish traditions and the writings and the Jewish proverb, what we find out is there is nothing that alludes to this before this time. In other words, sometimes we read something like this about the builders rejecting and we read of a situation like that and we say, you know, we can look back in previous Jewish history and we can see because an event that took place, they're making reference to that event. We don't see that here. This is something new that David is bringing up. And of course, he's bringing it up by inspiration. He's prophesying. What is he prophesying about? Well, that is debated. Many, many scholars, though, agree that there must have been some kind of stone that either in Solomon's temple that would soon be built or even in the next temple that would be built, that some way that stone was believed to not be cut properly. Now, you can imagine all of the detailed stories that have come out in a traditional form. One goes something like this. Because of the end of it, I can't agree with it perfectly. But still, I think it's important for us to get in mind that what the psalmist is prophesying here is the idea of rejection. And so one tradition goes something like this. As at a distance in the quarry, the rocks were being cut to exactly the right measurements and brought and set into place, there was brought a stone one day that was completely the wrong shape and the wrong size. And so therefore the builders rejected it, even though it had a mark by the architect that it was to be used within the building of the temple. Well, as it was cast to the side, 
Others begin to walk by and laugh at the fact that, look at that stone, it's such an outcast because it has no place in such a magnificent building as this. Now, since the temple took several years to build, it even began to grow moss on it. It was forgotten, so to speak. Finally, as the temple neared its completion, they realized that the architect must have made a mistake. There wasn't a stone marked for that final point on the pinnacle of the temple. And then they got to looking around and realized that that stone they thought was odd and outcast was cut precisely for the pinnacle. Now, I find a hard time believing that maybe that story is exactly true because here he speaks of that stone being the chief cornerstone. But I wouldn't have a hard time at all believing that there probably was some kind of flaw as they built the temple thinking that there was a stone that was rejected and then realizing that that stone they rejected was so important. But now I know this for certain. The stone of Israel came to this earth and he was the chief cornerstone. And men and women and boys and girls and almost an entire religious society rejected him thinking that he had no place in their life with God. Friends, that's amazing. But what also is amazing is how many people today continue to reject that chief cornerstone. Look with me at one more passage before we go back to Acts. Look at Matthew, the 21st chapter. The reason we need to look at this is we see reference of Jesus referring to this very same thing. Of course, this was before the establishment of the church because remember, the church wasn't established until 50 days after the resurrection. And so Jesus is alive and He's preaching on earth. This is before His crucifixion and resurrection. We're in Matthew, the 21st chapter. Now, we can make an entire lesson out of this paragraph very easily in 33. But let me begin by just telling you quickly what the story is. It's a parable about the wicked vine dressers in 33. And this is where a landowner decided to lease out his vineyard. And then the way the lease payments were going to be made was that a part of the fruit would be given to the landowner. Well, when it was harvest time, the landowner sent three servants to bring back the fruit. But instead of these individuals paying with the fruit, they began to persecute and to kill and to stone the three servants. Well, the man was obviously somewhat surprised by that, and so he sent other servants to collect the fruit. And the vine dressers, they did the very same thing with those servants. And finally, the landowner has an idea. <clears throat> if I send my son... They'll treat him with greater respect. He'll be able to bring back the harvest for me. And instead, they didn't do that. In 38, they said about the heir, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And then in 40, he said, <clears throat> therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? 41, this is how they answer Jesus after he's taught him this parable. Then said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and the lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit of their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Brethren, Jesus taught them a powerful parable, and it was prophetic. He reaches back to a prophecy that's hundreds of years old that's teaching the same thing, and He's warning them. You're going to see me come with power. You're going to see everything that I am. You're going to have to make a decision. Do you reject the stone or do you build your life on the stone? And individuals would end up rejecting the stone. As you know, that was the reason he was crucified. Now, let's think about all this that leads up to Acts the 4th chapter, because in Acts the 4th chapter, we have a setting here that really begins back at Acts the 3rd chapter. But the problem is, when you go back to Acts the 3rd chapter, we have a setting that begins back with Acts the 2nd chapter. You see, the whole point is, everything that's being done is being done, and please note this phrase, because we're going to see it in the Scriptures. It's being done in the name of Jesus. Now, who's Jesus? He's that stone that some were going to reject and others were going to build their life upon. And so in Acts, the second chapter, we have the day of Pentecost. We have at least 3,000 souls that are gathered together, and we have the preaching. And, and these verses I'm about to read are not on the slides. If you have your Bibles, you turn to Acts, the second chapter. It's on about 968 in your pew Bible. And notice what he began preaching in uh, Acts, the second chapter, in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now notice this. Who would you have to call upon? The name of the Lord. The problem is they didn't know who the Lord was. If you ask those Jews at that point in time, who's the Lord? They'd say, we're waiting on the Messiah to come. Because in their mind, they'd only crucified Jesus that lived in Galilee. Well, Peter takes this opportunity to introduce the Lord to them. In 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you. Now notice this, number one, by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you you also know. Him being delivered, number two, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Number three, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death. Now the reason I said one, two, and three, I want you to notice that these are three points that are made throughout the book of Acts. We see it here in Acts 2. We see it in Acts 3. We see it in Acts 4. We see it in Acts 5. We see it in Acts 7. It is a constant way to educate. And it's this. If you look around at the miracles, the powers, the signs, you have to admit that it's God that did this. And if it's God that's doing this, He's Jesus, the Son of God. Number two, you have to admit this. Man rejected Him and crucified Him. And when He's speaking to these individuals here, He's literally speaking to the ones that directly did that. And then number three, he says, you have to realize this, though. There was a resurrection. You saw him alive. Over 500 saw him at one time. He went to many individuals. We saw his miracles. We saw his death. We saw his resurrection. We saw his power. We saw your guilt. We saw the power of the resurrection. Those are important facts. Now, as we think about the name, they were pricked in their heart in 37. They cried out, what shall they do? Remember in 38 that they were told to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, it was significant that Peter preached that. You're going to be baptized into the very one that before you crucified. Now, if you'll notice in verse 43, 
Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, wait a minute. We're starting to make a cycle. Jesus came and did wonders and signs, and then he was crucified, and then he was resurrected, and now the apostles are going to go about, and they're going to do many wonders and signs that prove that their message is of God, and what they're going to preach about was the crucified Jesus, and that he shall, and that he was resurrected. So let's go to the third chapter. In the third chapter, Peter and John, verse 1, are on their way to their temple in the ninth hour for prayer. And in verse 2, there's that certain man who from his mother's womb was lame. Someone would carry him to the beautiful gate of the temple, and he would ask for alms there. And in verse 4, Peter looks at him and, and says to him, Look at us, and notice what he says in 6. Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What's happening here? Well, exactly what Luke was talking about in Acts 2. They were going to go about in miraculous ways. They were going to prove the name, the authority, the power of Jesus Christ. Now, can you imagine this? Notice what happens in verse 8. Leaping up, he stood... That never happened before. He was over 40 years old, the fourth chapter tells us. And he had never stood up before. Now this is amazing for him to be able to leap and to stand and to walk and to enter into the temple walking, leaping and praising God. Of course, this stirred up people's interest. So when Peter and John go into the temple, they go to Solomon's porch. And as we begin reading in verse 12 and following... He says in 12, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power of godliness we've made this man walk? And then midway through 13, he says, His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you, talking about Barabbas, and killed the Prince of Life. Now here it goes again. Whom God hath raised up from the dead, of which we are all witness. Now here we go back to the authority. And in His name, through faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. You see in the pattern? Oh, you're asking us how we can do these miracles? Don't look at us like we're the ones that's doing this miracle. It's God working in us. Oh, and it's in the name of Jesus, that one that you guys crucified. But it was the power of God that raised him from the dead. It's in his name that we have that power, and it's his name that we have the faith that we live. Now, you can imagine how some were being impressed. They were submitting their life. As a matter of fact, when we go back in the fourth chapter, which is where our text is found, in verse 4, we find out now that the church is numbering 5,000 men. That would probably be about a total of 10,000. Remember, just one chapter earlier, there were only 3,000 in the church. The church is growing with great might and power, but there are also those that were rejected. Wait a minute. 
That's what the scriptures taught would happen. Back in Psalms, some would reject and some would build their life because he was the chief cornerstone. That's what Jesus talked about. Some would reject and others would build their life. That's exactly what Peter is talking about now. Now, if you look in your Bible there in Acts, the fourth chapter, you see in verse 1 that it was the priest and it were the Sadducees that especially were upset at this point. Now, I want to just give you a little sideline of interest. It's interesting that when we look back in the Gospels when Jesus was alive on this earth, it seems like the Pharisees gave Jesus the hardest time. But after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection... We don't see nearly as much impact that the Pharisees made in a negative way, but now the greater negative impact is made by the Sadducees. I can't help but believe a part of that must be the fact that the Sadducees hated the topic of the resurrection. Well, now that Jesus was resurrected, that topic was preached in every sermon almost. And you can imagine every time Christianity was preached, their blood was boiling. They didn't even believe in miracles. They would take the stories uh, of, of God and they would strip the miraculous out of them. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so, so much of our Christian faith would stir them into anger. This is one of those occasions. They have seen a man healed miraculously. They didn't believe in miracles. What in the world are they going to do with that? Get angry. That's about the only thing they could do with it. And then after he was healed with a miracle which they couldn't explain or understand, they did listen to Peter's explanation, and he declared it was because of the power of a resurrected Lord. Well, that's just like putting the knife in and twisting it. You know we don't like those two topics. Don't talk to us about a powerful God that would perform miracles. And don't talk to us about a resurrection. And so when we go into the fifth, chapter, fifth verse, which was the beginning of the text that was just read for our text this morning, it's the next day. In other words, the, the Sanhedrin council has now had time to come together, which was probably made up of 71 Jews that were respected as leaders among various sects. And you can imagine they usually sat in a half circle. And then inside this half circle would have been two that had been in custody all night, Peter and John. But then, note this, standing beside them, put the emphasis on standing, standing beside them, verse 14 tells us, was the lame man that had been healed. And so the text that has been read for us, let's just kind of scan over some things, and, and the text will be on your screen there. Do you see there in verse 5, 6, and 7, notice what they actually ask. What the Sanhedrin council was asking of them in verse 7 is by what power and by what name have you done this thing? In other words, even back in Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter, Jews had a responsibility to identify if someone was trying to impress upon someone a miraculous sign to lead them away to other gods. They were to be proven wrong and put to death. And so the Sanhedrin council was probably in some way trying to fulfill Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter. But the point was, they weren't, Peter and John weren't trying to lead people to some other god. They were trying to lead them to the Almighty God and to the Son of God. And so he answers them. Look again in verse 9. 
he answered them about, okay, if. You see how he starts out in verse 9? If this day are judged, we are judged today for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he is made well. And then he says, I can tell you the answer how it happened. You wanted to know the power and the name in verse 10. The name is the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Now here's the power. Whom God hath raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you. Note this. This is very significant. Oh, you're trying us today because we did something good. That would have been a challenge for those Jews to hear because they did believe that they were good people. Oh, you want to know by what power and by what name we do this. Yes, we did do a good deed. We helped a lame man, and you can imagine them maybe just motioning, putting their hand around his shoulder. You can imagine his happiness, his family's happiness. Neighbors that loved him. Yeah, we did a good deed, but it wasn't us. It was the power of that Jesus that you crucified. It's in him that this man can stand. The symbolism in that is it's in him that any of us can stand. And it's without Jesus that none of us can stand. And it's in that setting that we read... Verse 11, and and I hope now that this verse means more than it ever has to us because we see it coming through the Scriptures. Imagine him just answering their questions, standing in front of the Sanhedrin council, and look at verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders and which has become the chief cornerstone. And then he adds to that instruction, nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Sanhedrin Council, you've rejected him. He's the chief cornerstone. Look what he's done in the life of this man. Look what he's done in our life. Look what he could do in your life because there's only salvation in this one name. No other name. No other name on earth can save. The only way to the Father is through Jesus. They had to decide what they were going to do. And I want to, if we could look at three or four more verses, and then we're just going to bullet two or three things and extend an invitation here. Look at 13 and 14. Now when they saw, notice this is a Sanhedrin, and notice what they're seeing with their own eyes. And this is verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now notice there's something else they saw, verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. How are you going to say it didn't happen? He's standing there. What a predicament they were in. But now notice there's something else that happened. They sent them out of the room then, and then when they finally called them in, the Sanhedrin council had discussed what they were going to do. Notice what they did in 18 and 19. So they called them, 
back into the room and they commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. That's the whole problem. You're going to say he's Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. You're going to give authority to his life. You're going to say that it's by him that we're saved. Just don't mention him again and we're going to let you off the hook, gentlemen. We're just being gracious to you. Look what he says in 19. Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. What an approach. An appeal to their conscience. So you're saying we ought to listen to you more than to God? That might be a good one to file away in your mind the next time you have friends or co-workers, peers that are pressuring you to do something that's not right. They may or may not agree with it, but it at least challenge their thinking. Oh, you want me to listen to you more than I listen to God. But now let's put these, we just read 13, 14, 18, and 19. Let's put these together in some bullet thoughts here. Notice what they saw. They saw boldness. And they couldn't figure out where this boldness was coming from because they were uneducated men. They didn't go through their schools. They were most of them from Galilee. How could they have such boldness? And then it came to them. They have been with Jesus. Friends, please note this. If our life has been influenced by Jesus, we have a boldness that cannot be hid. Second, notice the compassion. They saw the man healed. That individuals that had been with Jesus, working through the power of God, had blessed a life. I'm going to use some symbolism here. If a church cannot show a healed man, can it honestly claim to be the Lord's church? Ever since the beginning of the church, the church has been active in healing lives. The church has been active in doing good. Friends, it ought to be a natural part of our life that we constantly look to someone who is down, someone who is oppressed, someone who's going through a challenge, or someone who simply is our neighbor, and we ought to do good to them. I can't really claim the power in my life of Jesus Christ if goodness is not a constant factor in my life. But as you notice that third thing of the direction, their boldness, their compassion, their direction. And where was that direction? We can't listen to you more than God. We have to listen to God. This morning, we have seen from Old Testament to New Testament the struggle of building on the stone and others rejecting the stone. I want to ask you, where's your life? Have you rejected the stone, or are you building on the stone? Does your life exemplify boldness because Jesus has influenced your life? Does your life exemplify compassion and goodness because Jesus has influenced your life? Does your life have a direction about it where everything you do is because you listen to God instead of others Self or Satan. This morning.
Let's not make the mistake that countless men and women have made for years. Let's do the thing that the most blessed have done. They build their life on that rock. If you haven't been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, that's entrance into the church is what we just read a few minutes ago. His kingdom. If you're a believer that's willing to repent of sins and confess before men, won't you be baptized this morning into Christ? Maybe you've been baptized into Christ and somewhere along the way you've lost the way. If you need to come back and repent of sins and confess sins and let's pray forgiveness. Let's just make sure that we all leave here this morning having built our life on the rock. If we can help you in any way.